This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. for faith. Hello everyone. This is the Christian Evidences and Worldview radio program where we give you the evidence that shows that Christianity is true. I'm Kirk Hastings and we also have... Hello Keith. Hello Kirk. How are you? Keith Kendricks who uh, is an apologist with a master's degree in Christian apologetics. I always like to say that because it really makes you sound like a big brain. Oh, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> From Biola University. <laughs> there you go. Have you ever considered being a professor or anything? Uh, that would be fun. I would love that, actually. I'd like to see you in a beard and a pipe. I would love that, too. <laughs> Keith is smooth-shaven for you people out there that don't know him, so trying to picture him with a beard and smoking a pipe is a little tough, but <laughs> it, would, it presents an interesting I, picture. <laughs> I imagine myself that way. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Today we're going to uh, continue with a topic that we've been uh, talking about for the past couple of weeks on worldviews. Specifically, uh, we've been zeroing in uh, since last week on the Christian worldview and what that entails and how it's different from a secular worldview. But first, uh, we have a couple of messages here. No, we have uh, actually a couple of features here. We're not going to stick any commercials in on you. Um, not yet. No, not yet. We haven't. We don't have commercials yet, but maybe one of these days. Okay. Um, first of all, let's start off with uh, we have an interesting uh, quote of the week here for you from author C.S. Lewis, who is one of my favorite authors. He was one of the first authors I started reading when I became a Christian, um, and he has a very interesting quote from one of his books here called "God in the Dock," and I'm going to read that for you. It goes. We can make people often attend to the Christian point of view for half an hour or so, but the moment they have gone away from our lecture or laid down our article, they are plunged back into a world where the opposite position is taken for granted. As long as that situation exists, widespread success is simply impossible. We must attack the enemy's line of communication. What we want is not more little books about Christianity, but more little books by Christians on other subjects with their Christianity latent. You can see this most easily if you look at it the other way around. Our faith is not very likely to be shaken by any book on Hinduism. But if whenever we read an elementary book on geology, botany, politics, or astronomy, we find, and we find that its implications were Hindu, that would shake us. It is not books written in direct defense of materialism that make the modern man a materialist. It is the materialistic assumptions in all the other books. In the same way, it is not books on Christianity that will really trouble him. But he would be troubled if, whenever he wanted a cheap popular introduction to some science, the best work on the market was always written by a Christian. Wow, isn't that a great quote? Yeah, and uh, of course C.S. Lewis died in 1963. Uh, interestingly enough, on the same day that President Kennedy was assassinated, which is why many of you may not remember 
that day. His death. Yeah. Yes, his obituary got kind of crowded off the front page. Yeah, but, there's uh, actually an interesting book written about the fact that they both uh, died on the same day, and it, it has them meeting in uh, heaven's waiting room to try to discuss issues on theology. It's a, so it's a clever idea for a book. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I'd like to read that. But getting but back anyway, to this yeah. quote, though, yeah, I this think quote this is... is th- the reason I bring that up is this This is not a recent quote, although it may be, sound like it was written yesterday. This quote was written some years back. Yeah, absolutely. And we do see books on materialism or atheism coming out now and being very convincing to people because yes. everything around them is, you know, basically materialistic already. So as Christians, we need to influence things directly and indirectly and show how the Christian worldview impacts all areas of life, not just theology. Right. And of course, the modern situation being what it is, we also have, uh, there's very little reference to the Christian point of view in our public schools today, because many people think, oh, you can't mention uh, any religious ideas or anything like that in the classroom, because that violates separation of church and state. So a lot of that material has been chucked out the window, and the kids don't hear it in their classrooms. Right, and it's really a false view of separation of church and state. If you wanted to separate church and state, you'd say that the state cannot ban religious topics in school. Right. So That would be true freedom of speech. Right. But that's not necessarily what we have today. No. And uh, unfortunately, if you hear the Christian message on one day a week on Sunday, and then you hear a secular point of view for five or six days a week, which one do you think kids are going to favor? <laughs> right, right, absolutely. Yep. Oh, uh, well. Well, we're here to remedy some of that. Yes, that's what we're here for. We're here to give you the other point of view. <laughs> right. The only, the real thing that we have going for us is the pragmatism of Christianity, the fact that it actually works. So people in people's everyday lives, they see that things discussed in the Bible and talked about by Christians actually do work. Uh-huh. And so even though there's this tremendous amount of worldview expression in books on biology and astronomy and all those other things that seem to assume a materialistic viewpoint, still in people's practical lives, they just simply can't live that way. Atheism and materialism and naturalism are just too unworkable as philosophies of life. So right. Christianity at least has got the upper hand in that pragmatic sort of way that if you want to live a good life, you really got to try the Christian worldview. Right. And of course, as the author of a book on the subject, I always like to look at it from the point of view of uh, Christianity is a very historically based idea. It's based in actual history which right. gives it an edge on most of the other religions of the world. Absolutely. So you can take it that way, too. If you want to study history, uh, you know, particularly the life of Jesus Christ, which we have uh, what have proven, proven to be reliable documents about his life and the things he did and said, and you can't just pass that off and say, oh, well, you know, that doesn't matter. It's, it's not a philosophy. It's, it's history. Absolutely. Right. Okay, Uh, how about if I mention at this point also that uh, if you would like to listen to podcasts of our previous programs, they are available on our website, which uh, is located at www.evidencethenumber4faith.com. And if you'd like to ask us a question, you can also email us on that site. So keep that in mind while you're listening to our program today. 
Okay. Uh, next, we have a little interesting uh, news article here that we would like to go over before we get into today's topic. Uh, it's called Hands-On Dads Give Kids an Edge. And this is apparently, as I look it over, it's a Canadian study that was done by the Canadian Institutes of Health Research and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. Now, if that doesn't sound professional, I don't know what does. Yeah, it's <laughs> actually a very impressive sounding study. Yes. Uh, the article here is based in Montreal, and it starts out by saying that uh, this study links father's presence to enhanced intellect and well-being among children. It goes on to say, fathers who actively engage in raising their children can help make their offspring smarter and better behaved, according to this new research. Uh, the long-term study examined how fathers can positively influence the development of their kids through hands-on parenting. It goes yeah. on to say, uh, fathers make important contributions in the development of their children's behavior and intelligence, says Aaron, if I pronounce this correctly, Poignet, a Ph.D. candidate in the Concordia University Department of Psychology and a member of the Center for Research and Human Development. Uh, she goes on to say, compared with other children with absentee dads, kids whose fathers were active parents in early and middle childhood had fewer behavior problems and higher intellectual abilities as they grew older, even among socioeconomically at-risk families. Yeah, isn't this a great evidence for the importance of fathers? Yes. And, you know, how we really do need two parents, male and female, this is not also this study doesn't denigrate the influence of mothers. It's just saying that fathers are very influential. Uh, and I think later on it talks about the effect on girls too. It's, yes. it's uh, even more important for young girls that they have a father in their, in their life. Yes, it uh, actually part of the study uh, goes out of its way to say that uh, you know mothers and uh, uh, different caregivers are important too, but the point it's trying to make is not that you know mothers or other caregivers aren't necessary, but it's trying to make the point that fathers are necessary too. We shouldn't say that oh you know uh, if you have one parent then that's the ideal situation. Really, the ideal situation is both parents. Right. And right. Uh, it goes on to say here, uh, quoting from Aaron again, she says, regardless of whether fathers lived with their children, their ability to set appropriate limits and structure their children's behavior positively influenced problem solving and decreased emotional problems such as sadness, social withdrawal, and anxiety. Yep. So, so Excellent. Very interesting. It says a total of 138 children and their parents took part in this study, and the kids were evaluated between the ages of 3 to 5 years old and, again, from 9 to 13 years old. Yeah, I think uh, this is something we should set aside for Father's Day and just remind everybody about this again on Father's Day because this is very important. That's a good idea. Just a, another example of how pragmatic the Christian worldview is. The Christian worldview actually works, actually makes people better and gives people happier, better lives. And in this case, actually increases their intelligence. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And once again, it kind of backs up the idea that uh, God knew what he was doing when he designed the family, when he designed uh, the mother and the father to come together and to have children. And of course, his uh, he, he knew that it wasn't always going to work out this way, but the ideal is that the father and the mother raise the kids together, and that really is the best situation for kids to grow up in. That's right. And just because perhaps you can't 
do that. You can't provide that. Maybe the father died or you've already divorced and the father has moved away. That doesn't mean that you denigrate others' attempts to reach that ideal or that you, you know, denigrate the idea itself. No. We still have to uphold these ideals in society, even though we personally may not be able to reach those ideals ourselves. Sure. So too much today we see a kind of envious attack of, you know, a man and woman and the whole idea of nuclear family being important and people will poo-poo it and say it's not important. And mostly they're doing that because they haven't been able to achieve that themselves. And so out of envy and out of spite, they want to downgrade the importance of these things. And we really shouldn't. We're just causing other people harm that we may have experienced ourselves. Sure. It's like many things in life where we can have an ideal to strive for. That doesn't mean that everyone is going to be able to live that ideal. But you do the best you can, and you have that ideal in front of you as the ideal situation that you would like to work toward. Right. And you should encourage others to reach that ideal, too. Right. Yeah. Uh, Not uh, hold that attitude that, uh, you know, a woman needs a husband like a fish needs a bicycle. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yep, as we've been told. (laughs) Yes. An old feminist icon quote. Right. Okay. So let's move on to our topic for today, which is uh, we've been talking about worldviews, and we spent a week talking about uh, exactly what a worldview is Mm -hmm. and how you come up with one and how pretty much everybody has one, whether you realize it or not. And it's important to understand what your worldview is and what kind of point of view you're coming from in the way that uh, you evaluate your life and, you know, how you're going to think and act. And then we uh, spent last week basically zeroing in on some of the basics of what a Christian worldview is, and we're going to continue with that idea today. Right. We looked at the nature of God. Yes. So we focused on what the Christian belief is about the nature of God, and we should remind people the reason this is important is because it lays a foundation for all of the rest of the ideas that are going to be built upon it matters very much how you answer the basic questions of life. Is there a God or not? If there is a God, what's he like? And so you can see that if you build a philosophy of life based on the idea that there is no God, you're going to come up with a very different way of thinking or a different worldview about such things as education, society, economics, philosophy. All those other ideas depend very much on the basic questions that the philosophers try to answer, things like, who is God? Does he exist? What's he like? Who is man? What's the problem with man? And what's the remedy for man's problem? So that's what we're going to look at today, the nature of man. Right. If you, uh, if you believe in God, then one of the important questions is going to be, how does God want you to live your life? So yep. we're going to look at that, and we're going to get into the nature of man, which... Uh, we're going to start from the point that uh, man is fallen. So, Keith, you want to flesh that out a little bit? Yeah, you know, people hear about this a lot. They hear the concept of the fall of man or man has fallen. And if they're not from a Christian background, it's tough for them to understand what the heck people are talking about. Sometimes they think that that's some kind of doctrine that all people are always evil all the time. And that's really not what this is all about. No. The idea is that when God created Adam and Eve, that they were in a 
state of innocence. That is, that they didn't distinguish between good and evil. Right. But they were capable of either, but they didn't really uh, have any knowledge of it. That's, that's right. And because they chose to follow a path of evil, their disobedience had dramatic changes to the nature of human beings as a whole, and in fact, to the entire earth. But man basically became sinful. So this isn't to say that all men are really all evil all the time. It's just right. that there is a tendency. Uh, and, of course, we know that many people are very good and have a capacity to be very good. And we see many tremendous acts of bravery or generosity done by people who perhaps haven't been brought up in a Christian worldview. Right. So we're not saying that people don't have the potential for good. But what we are saying is that people have a tremendous potential for evil. And really, you just have to look back at the 20th century if you want to see some examples of the incredible depths of human evil. And yes, you there's just no way to underestimate how evil people can really be. Sure. We had examples in the 20th century like uh, Hitler and Mussolini and uh, Chairman Mao and quite a few people that ended up slaughtering sometimes millions of people. I understand yep. that the 20th century there were more uh, there were more killings by ty tyrannical regimes than any other century in history. That's right. Yeah, in fact, it's been stated that if you added up all the wars prior, uh, that the number of people killed was more in the 20th century than had ever been killed before, all, all combined. Isn't that incredible? So, so much for the idea that we're getting better, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Some kind of uh, evolution morally isn't really happening. Right. Well, in uh, the book of Genesis, uh, chapter 6, verse 12, here's a verse that kind of uh, gives God's point of view on what we're talking about. It says that God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. Right. So there's this idea that we have a kind of a contagious attitude on each other. So corrupt people help other people to become corrupt, and corruption in one way helps to corrupt other ways, so that eventually you can become corrupt in all your ways, in right. everything you do. Like you said earlier, we have a tendency toward evil. That doesn't mean that all people are all evil all the time. It just means that if we're left to ourselves, our tendency is to go in the self-centered, selfish, evil direction, not in the good direction. That's right. That's right. And anybody who's tried to fight evil in their own lives knows just how difficult the battle can be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's, there's so many things out there that try to drag us down, and it's very easy to become trapped. Uh, Absolutely. In, in Genesis, again, in chapter 6, verse 5, it says that the Lord saw how great the wicked, wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Yeah. Now, it sounds like it was really bad back then. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I guess that it probably, maybe without the technology, maybe they didn't have as much ability to kill so many, or there weren't as many around to be killed. But uh, still, I, I think the 20th century gives us a, a view as to how bad man could have been in the past, too. Right. Well, if uh, you're just joining us, this is uh, Evidence for Faith, the Christian Worldview Program, and I'm Kirk Hastings. And I'm Keith Kendricks. And we are talking about the nature of man. According to the Bible, that's right. Yes. So man has this fallen nature, and 
this nature, this what we are like, so to speak, creates desires in, and when we say man, of course, we mean men and women. We're right. not just speaking about males only. We're speaking generically. <laughs> generically, right. Um, so we have this innate desire to commit evil deeds. Right. In uh, the book of Romans, in the New Testament, uh, chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, which is referring to Adam, and death through sin, in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. Right. In other words, Adam started the whole thing, but we all continue it on our own. It's not That's just right. his fault. <laughs> That's right. So while we did adopt an, a human nature, a sinful human nature, or this fallen nature, still this verse points out that we still are personally responsible ourselves because we have, in fact, all sinned. Right. Okay. Uh, also, uh, this is an interesting, of course, this is kind of topical here. Uh, next, it talks about how man was created male and female for the purpose of bearing and raising godly offspring. Now, yeah, this is that a controversial of, subject today. Oh, bearing offspring? Well, the male and female part, too. That's right. Now we say you don't need male and female to do that. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that is one of the aspects of the Christian worldview is what is man? And mankind is this being which is both male and female. Right. So what that means is that as individuals, as individual males or individual females, we're actually part of a unit that's bigger than we are. We're right. not completely a human being in a sense. Uh, let me see if I can explain what this would be like. Let's say that there were aliens who are coming to the earth and they are looking at human beings and they're saying, wow, these, this is an interesting species. <laughs> Let's collect some of these human beings and take them back to our planet and put them in a zoo. <laughs> well, can you imagine if they took just a man would they really have a full representation of what it means to be a human being? No, they wouldn't. Or, or if they took just a woman, right? Would would that be a full representation of what it means to be a human being? No. Can you imagine right. the picture they would have of the human race with just one or the other, and but not the second one? Yeah, it would be incomplete. Right. It, in order to really have a sampling of what it means to be a human being, you would have to have both male and female. Right. So, so we are not just individuals. We were created by God to be part of a bigger unit. We're kind of like two, and this actually, this explanation comes from Benjamin Franklin, who said that a man and a woman are like two halves of a pair of scissors. Huh. Well, that's you know, good. They fit together. They look very similar. Right? right? Two halves of a pair of scissors look very similar. That's right. <laughs> but if you have two right halves of a pair of scissors, you can't cut paper with that. No. Or if you have two left halves, or I guess you would say male and female because they usually fit together by a pin into a socket system. So if you have one without the other, you can't cut paper. But together, the entire unit is better than the, the separate parts. So the sum is a greater total than the parts are themselves, that's and that's what God has created. God created something that is male and female, and you notice when you read the text that you see this big emphasis on he created them male and female, male and female, he created them. Right. You know, very 
specifically saying, hey, this is important, the fact that God created us as two halves of a separate whole. That's the way the ancient Hebrews emphasized a great truth, was to repeat it twice like that. Yeah. So, um, so you know, this is why, and I think it's very sad today when we see young people getting older and older before they marry because society just doesn't impress upon them the importance of marriage, the importance of bonding to a mate and becoming this greater unit. Yeah, there's an emphasis on doing everything on your own by yourself as long as possible. Yeah, being an individual and not needing anyone else, and that's simply not the way you were designed. Yeah. You were designed to be part of a whole. Right. Another thing that God created man like is he created man as a duality. So man is a soul in a body, right? We're not just a body. We're not uh, just the flesh, just a piece of meat, right. uh, complicated meat. Uh, on the other hand, we're not just a spirit either. We're not just something immaterial. You know, the me that I'm talking about isn't just my soul. Right. The, the whole me is a duality. It's, it's me and my body together. It's the physical and the mental. That's right. The physical and the spiritual or the physical and the soul. Right. And the important thing to realize and the important thing in the Christian worldview about this duality is that the soul continues to live after the body dies. Right. But in the future, according to Scripture, we will be reunited with a new body. Which so, won't it's, wear it's, out like these things do. <laughs> that's right. That's right. A, a body that's not subject to disease or deformity or wearing out. So, And it's called a, a spiritual body, but we will be reunited. And because that is what we are, we were made to be both soul and body. Right. We and, weren't meant to float around like spirits forever. That's right. Even though we can, and you know, we've talked about in past shows that the human soul can live on after death. And as we've shown some of these documented near-death experiences... But our natural state is to be in a body of some kind. That's right. That's right. Yeah, which is fine with me, you know. I, I, I don't like the idea of, you know, floating around like a ghost forever or whatever. But right. on the other hand, it's nice to think uh, that someday we'll have a body that's perfect and won't wear out. <laughs> that's right. And live in a universe that also is not subject to entropy. Right. Well, a third aspect of the nature of man then from a biblical theological perspective, is that because of this aspect of the fall, that, and because we have all sinned, that we deserve separation from God. So God, and we went over the nature of God, that he is holy and perfect and the summum bonum, the best of all possible goods, right? the best of all possible virtues. So now we have a problem because man is not that way. Man is fallen, Man is sinful, and the two just don't mix. It's like oil and water. Right. God and man don't mix right now. There's a verse, uh, why don't you read it, Kirk? Romans 5.12. Yes, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Right. So death means separation. So when we die... Our spirit separates from our body, right. but also 
we have spiritual death. We are separated from God. So man is on this earth, in a sense, separated from God and deserves to be separated from God. And if we die in an unrepentant state, and we'll get to that, what, what redemption and repentance are all about, we deserve to be separated from God permanently. Right. And I've also heard that explained in terms of, uh, in the end, God really gives us what we want. And if we decide that we really don't want God or we don't want to have anything to do with him, he gives us that, which exactly. is what hell is. That is being separated from God. If we say, well, I, I don't want to have anything to do with God, then he gives us what we ask for. That's right. Now, I think this is really interesting, too, because there's a scientific piece of information that seems to confirm this verse in Romans 5, 12. Really? And it, yeah, it's that... Not only man, but all animals are programmed to die. Yeah. So, so this is really a strong evidence, a strong refutation of the theory of evolution. You know, I remember wondering about that in school when I first heard of this concept of evolution. I remember thinking, you know, if, if this idea is true that we're kind of improving over time, if we're getting better and better, why do we all die at some point? It's like, that's not very efficient. Why, why didn't evolution weed that trade out? Right. Or at least make us live a lot longer. Right. Yeah. You know, some, you know sci- a lot of scientists say that, uh, you know, barring disease and accidents and all that, you know, natural stuff that can happen to you, that really the human body could live for like 120, 130 years, given perfect conditions. That's right. So why don't we all live that long and then just drop over? <laughs> well, because of what you said, disease and accidents and things like that. So, but the real question is, why don't we live longer than 120? Right. Why do we die? Why don't we live 320? Why don't, why don't we drop we over at all? Th- <laughs> well, you know, eventually you can see that it's possible that we would eventually die just because everything eventually falls apart. Right. But... Uh, it might be interesting for our listeners to know that bacteria don't die of old age. Really? So far as we know, they're the only organism that does not die of old age. So well, think about interesting. it. <laughs> yeah, a cell and a cell, uh, either a bacteria or the cell of a living organism, that's part of a tissue in an organism, that cell is responsible for repairing itself. Right. So... Any kind of wear and tear that would happen on the cell would be repaired by these repair mechanisms. Right. But we are actually, each cell is actually programmed to die. So it's not permitted to repair itself any longer. It's, it's there, like a built-in timer that says, that's okay, right. that's it, your time is up. That's right. And that's the show that we did about the telomerase. And we explained the function of this timing mechanism. And each organism has its own time frame. So, for instance, a koi fish, they say, can live to be 200 years old. Right. Or a tree might live to be 1,000 years old. Right, or more. A couple Whereas thousand years. Whereas a moth might live three days. Right. And they actually die of old age, too. You know, <laughs> we had a beagle that lived 10 years. Uh-huh. And it died of old age. Yeah. In 10 years. Yeah. There's actually a disease called per- perjoria that causes 
children to die of old age. They die of old age between 10 and 12 years old. I've seen that. I've seen pictures of these children, and they're, they're little children, and they look like little old men and women. It's really That's strange. Right. And they're suffering from arthritis, and yeah. you know, their hair falls out. And, and it almost know. seems, you know, looking at them, it almost seems like this little timing mechanism has been messed up. That's right. And that is what has happened. So, and so since you can see that a simple mutation can cause that timing mechanism to be messed up and shortened, a very simple mutation would also lengthen it. So that instead of living for only 100 to 120 years, we could easily live 200, 300, 400 or more years. Right. Which would be very beneficial to passing on those positive genes we would right. be able to have more offspring, which would pass on the genes of longevity. Right. But, so, but you know, really, if evolution were true, you're saying then it would definitely want that trait. Exactly. So, how come we don't have it by now? That's right. So, this is a simple refutation of the concept of macroevolution. We just simply don't have this happening because God has pre-programmed every organism to die at a certain point. Right. Yeah, and that's interesting, too, how you pointed out that different species have different timers. You know, like I had a pet cat that lived for 19 years, which actually, even for a cat, is a long time. But, right. you know, dogs have their time. Cats have their time. Elephants, I understand, can live to be like 200 years old. Mm-hmm. It, it's like every species has their own individual timer as to how long they're going to live. And when they hit that point, that's it. They're done. That's right. It's really interesting. Yep. So let's... Let's look now, we've, we've looked at a little bit about man that we've learned from the Christian worldview, so let's look at this problem of the fall of man, and what, has, what is God going to do about it? I mean, it seems like his creation at this point is out of control. Right. Everything is decaying and dying away, man is separate from God and can't return to him, it's like oil and water. But he created us to live forever and to be perfect, and then we messed that up. So now what's he going to do about it? That's right. So out of his own goodness, God has provided a means for redemption, a means for us to be brought back into his favor. Right. And this is through the death of his son on the cross. Sinners are freely offered a new life in Jesus Christ only through a personal relationship with him. So Jesus is our sin bearer. He takes the penalty and the punishment for our sin, and through a relationship with him, he gives us, in return, new life. And this is all done by grace through the unmerited favor of God and through the power of the Holy Spirit, and that helps us then to live a victorious, obedient life in Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, maybe we should make plain here that Jesus' death on the cross, at least not yet, has not, um, doesn't affect how long we live physically. Our bodies still wear out according to this timer that we have in us. But That's right. What it's really saying is that he has reconciled us to God so that uh, God is no longer angry with us. And when this physical body does die, uh, our spirit is free to return to God who made it, and we don't have to be separated from it anymore. That's right. Yeah, good description. Yeah. Well, that's good news, huh? Absolutely. And of course, if you know the Bible, it predicts that sometime in the future, 
he's going to bring history to a close as we know it, and things are going to change, and we're going to receive new bodies that are designed the way he originally designed them not to wear out. Right. That's good news, too. And this transition is described in uh, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, or this transaction, I should say, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So we trade our sin, and Christ takes that, and he gives us eternal life, meaning life, real true life with God in the future. So instead of eternal separation from him, we get eternal reconciliation with him. Exactly. Uh, yeah, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Yep. Which means we didn't do it. (laughs) That's right. It's not through us, it's through him. And that's the Christian view of how God solves this problem of the fall of man and the uh, trouble that's in the universe, in the creation that we see all around us. Now, if God was not a benevolent God, he could have just left, decided to just leave things the way they are, and we would just all die and be separated from him forever, and that would be the end of the story. But he wasn't satisfied to leave it that way. Right. He had a purpose for all of this. So, And Great. that is to make us into Christ-like beings, to become more like he is. So right. after the redemption, then there's sanctification, this process of becoming more and more like Christ. And so that's one of the exciting things about being a Christian is this transformation process that you go through. It's like being a caterpillar and then being in the chrysalis and changing so that we know that one day at our the resurrection, we will be resurrected as butterflies, completely new type of creature. Right. In a sense, the caterpillar dies and the butterfly is born from that. Exactly right. So we're in this, on this earth, going through that transition process into Christ-likeness. What a great hope that is. Absolutely. And unfortunately, the atheist doesn't have that. All he believes is when he dies, that's it. That's the end. I'm gone. Right. Fantastic. Well, well, how do we know all this? You know, we've looked at the Christian worldview about what man is like, what God is like. How we know it is that we have a creator who's not silent. Okay, as Francis Schaeffer described in one is one of his books, he is there and he is not silent. Yes. So God reveals himself and he has done that in three ways. First, he's revealed himself generally in the creation. Right. Okay. So we talked last week, I think it was, when we talked about how children have this innate belief in God, even if they grow up in a non theistic society, they will innately believe in the existence of God. It's like an instinct in them. And also, we can look at the creative world and see the beauty and the intricacy and the intelligent design of things. Also, just simply thinking logically, a priori, that is, without evidence, without any kind of examination of the world, just by our minds, just by pure logic, we can reason out that God must exist as the prime mover, as the first cause of all things. Right. So God's revealed himself in all these different ways. There's a really interesting verse in the book of Romans where it describes that. In uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, 
being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Yeah, absolutely. So God is not silent. He has revealed himself. And this really is one of the reasons why there are so many religions in the world, because man left alone to his own resources knows that God exists. And so if he doesn't learn a religion from his parents, he will make up his own religion. Some people have tried to say that there are so many religions in the world, it's proof that God doesn't exist. And actually, that's not true. It's obvious evidence that God does exist. Yeah, we may not know many specifics about him, but we all, to some extent, you know, basically believe that there is something somewhere. That's right. And, you know, even the ancients, Plato and Aristotle, were able to, just by sheer logic, determine that a single god existed. Now, they lived in a very religious environment, although there were atheists in the, at the time. But still, it was a kind of a polytheism, kind of a human, very human-like gods who just were sort of demigods. They had, you know, powers, almost magical powers, but that was about it. Right. But Plato and Aristotle were able to determine that, no, in fact, that there is one creator god, one immensely powerful prime mover. And that was done simply by logic, by philosophy. Yeah, you know, it was interesting. I remember as a kid, long before I became a Christian, I was really interested in Greek mythology and the Greek gods and all that. And I read a lot of stuff on that. And it was interesting that just a few years ago, uh, I read something, I found out something that I hadn't heard before was that, you know, the, the ancient Greeks considered Zeus the king of the gods, right? He was the number one guy. But Mm -hmm. what is not generally known is that the Greeks also believed that there was something or someone beyond Zeus that was the prime cause of Zeus and everything else, but they had no name for him. It was kind of like the unknown god that uh, Paul speaks about in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, if I'm remembering correctly, I think that was in the city of Corinth, where he saw the statue to an unknown god? Uh, I think it was Athens. Was it Athens? Okay. Yeah. Well, it was in Greece. So I I think that that is probably referring to the same idea that even the ancient Greeks realized that, okay, Zeus is the king of the gods, but there's something or someone even beyond him that we don't know who he is, but we believe he's there. (laughs) Right. They even built statues to this unknown god whom they didn't know who it was. That's right. And there's one ancient historian said that there were more statues to various gods in Athens than there were people or Athenians. So, <laughs> wow. So they were a very religious people. Yes, almost too religious. <laughs> so God has spoken in this general way, this we call general revelation. Right. But he's also spoken formally through his word, the Bible. And this is how we find out the specifics about him. Yes, that's right. The, the creation, the expression, the general revelation only tells us a little bit about God. I mean, we can figure out that he is immensely powerful, knowing, loving, personal, those kinds of things we can figure out. But other than that, like, you know, what's his plan? Right. Um, you know, why is it that man seems to be having so much trouble? What's gone wrong with the universe since he created it? Right. Those kinds of things we we really can't understand. And does God hate us or like us? <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Those kinds of questions we 
couldn't really know. Well, although, no, we can know that he's loving because of the fine-tuning. So that he's taken so much care to make sure that, uh, that we are cared for on this earth, that we have food, that you know, all the plants and things that produce things for us to use, it's obvious that he cares about us. Yes. Even in their fallen state, they still work pretty well. Here's a, a verse about this, 2 Timothy 3.16. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that's his revelation to us. That's his formal description of the universe and how things are, are working. Right. So it's something that, and you know, I think we should point out that what we mean by this, this God-breathed, this inspiration, is that we're talking about the original manuscripts. Right. And Which we not, have very faithful copies of, but they're not right. the originals. That's right. And these manuscripts don't affirm. So what we are saying is that by them being inspired, it means that they don't affirm anything that's contrary to fact. Right. So the scriptures are reliable, they're trustworthy. And as Christians, we're required to obey the scriptures. If we want to become in this plan to make us more Christ-like, we need to know what, how we ought to behave. And so that's described for us. Yes, in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 25, it says, But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, which means the Bible, and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. Yeah, absolutely. And also in uh, John, chapter 14, verse 21, it says, Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father. This is Jesus speaking, and I too will love them and show myself to them. That's right. So if we want to know what Jesus' commands are, then we need to look to Scripture to see how it is that we ought to obey him. And speaking of Christ, that brings up a third way in which God has spoken to us, and that is personally through his Son. Yes. So as the incarnate word, Scripture says that that. God came to live amongst us in Jesus Christ. Yes, it's interesting that the Bible in Genesis uh, tells us that God literally spoke the physical universe into existence. Mm -hmm. And then he gave us the written word, which is the Bible, and then he refers to Jesus Christ as the word become flesh. Right. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, it, it states this idea. It says the word meaning Jesus Christ, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Yeah, so so that's this interesting, then there's this trichotomy of, of ways that God has communicated. He's communicated in the creation through speaking and creating the entire universe through a spoken word, and then in the Bible, in the inspired word, and then through Jesus Christ, the incarnate word. So yeah. just an amazing example of how thoroughly God communicates. Yeah, that's really interesting. I'd never actually heard it broken down this way before, the three different ways that God has communicated with us. You know, when mm-hmm. people say that, oh, you know, if, if God is there, why doesn't he make himself plain? Or why doesn't he tell us who he is or whatever? And here are the three words, three ways in which he has actually done that. That's right. 
Yep. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, it says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Mm-hmm. So this brings us then to the doctrine or the theological view that's a basis for the Christian worldview of Jesus Christ. Yep. Who is Jesus Christ? So let's uh, spend the last few minutes of the show talking a little bit about Jesus Christ. So in the Christian worldview, Jesus is one person who is both truly God and truly man. Hmm. So in one sense, God had, or Jesus had human weaknesses and limitations. Mm-hmm. He grew tired, he was thirsty, he got hungry. That's just right. Like we do. That's right. So we know that he was truly a man, because uh, some of the Gnostics tried to say that, God, that Jesus wasn't a man, that he was just a spirit. Right, that he wasn't really physical or something. <laughs> That's right, and, which is funny because so many of the atheists want to say that the Gnostic Gospels are the real Gospels, the, you know, the ones that have the truth about Jesus, and it's the Gnostics who didn't think Jesus was actually a man. Right, and yet he was truly God as well. Yeah, that's right. Uh, there's a verse, Luke 2, 52, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Right. You know, he grew. He had to learn. You know, he had to get stronger. Um, he had to learn how to deal with people. He grew in, fa- in favor with God and man. So, Jesus was a real human being. Yep. Next week, we'll look further at Jesus as God, and we'll show you verses where, that, where Jesus is directly called God. He yep. is said to be Theos, the Greek word for God, the creator of the universe. Okay, sounds good. Uh, okay, that about wraps it up for this week. So, yeah, it's been a great talk. Yep. Uh, I find this stuff really interesting to get into the basics of what the Christian faith is really about. So, okay, uh, join us next time then for Evidence for Faith, and always remember the best reason for being a Christian is because it's true. Yeah,